is it? Welcome to the Clean Comedy Time Podcast. I'm Aaron Sorrells. And I'm Brian Atkinson. Today our guest is Leslie Battle. Leslie is a Columbus, Ohio-based comedian, and she makes her home in the beautiful suburbs of Columbus, Ohio, and also an Army veteran. And we are going to talk to her about the good, the bad, and the funny. But yes, I live in Columbus, Ohio. I'm also a military vet. I served in the Army for 26 years. I enjoyed my time in the military because they taught me some really important skills, you know, like how to do a proper push-up or how to think strategically. And ladies, they want a basic training. I'm not to get mad when you see other women dressed like you. are everywhere in the army when you think about it oh my goodness leslie thank you so much for being on the show we're delighted to have you here yes leslie thank you for having me yeah i'm so happy you're here this is gonna be a great show (laughs) i'm very talkative so you know feel free to be like okay can we get this next question in because you know (laughs) well the fun part about this one for me is um leslie and i met uh at a comedy show uh some time ago uh it was at a um it was either a uh, like a Kiwanis or an American Legion or uh, something like that in the uh, Northville, uh, Detroit area. And uh, I kept in touch through social media. And then the time came when I was going to do a clean comedy show, a Christmas show in Philadelphia while I was visiting family there. And she was like, yeah, I'll drive up from Columbus. It'll be great. I was like, sweet. <laughs> we had a great time uh, at that show. Uh, that was uh, one of our church shows. Uh, kind of, but they still they had a stage and a theater and everything, and it was uh, it was a really really fun show. And uh, Leslie, you were a big part of that, and we're so glad you could do that and be on our show tonight. I loved performing. Um, I I would go to great lengths to perform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the term road warrior is always like, oh look, there's a picture of Leslie in battle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's. And she's not wearing her uniform, but she does have some type of explosive device. Oh, yeah. For so many times, you know, being a woman, being a minority woman, just for me to introduce myself as a comic was like, what? Really? No way. And then it was like, so you go all these places by yourself? And it's just like, well, if I don't have anybody to drive me, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're willing. You're willing to go with someone. Oh, heavens. But... I lived in my car for, for oh. many of those years. I performed for roughly nine years, just shy of nine years. Mm. Wow. And I'm kind of taking a hiatus for right now. But, you know, never say never, I guess. <laughs> well, I think we're all on a hiatus right now. Uh, yeah. So at least uh, here in Michigan, we certainly are. Um, but, uh, Leslie, let's talk about... Um, when you did comedy, um, did you have a, a process that you went through or was it really just, you know, life experiences? Like, for example, uh, I know that, uh, you're not as old as I am, but, uh, <laughs> I'm seasoned. I'll, I'll say it. You have some of the same health problems I do. But my, my, my doctor, she has zero children. None, none whatsoever. What's been going on is my blood pressure's been steadily creeping. Right. So it's gotten to the point where she wanted to treat me, right? And I was like, well, you know, diet and exercise, 
exercise, she's like, sis, look, <laughs> you already don't smoke. You already don't drink. This is not a diet and exercise thing. I'm like, really? You're just going to give me, like, no options? So basically, I have to give up, like, carbs and salt and hope, you guys. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's just so little That's the hope that uh, hurts the most, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian can tell you, I'm I'm not, you know, a, a very uh, uh, beefy, for want of a better word, <laughs> built yeah. person. Yourself. And yeah, you know, all your life you hear, oh, well, you know, if, if you smoke and you drink and you don't eat well and da da da, that, you know, this could happen to you. But what you really don't hear is like, oh, but it happens to other people who are relatively healthy too, especially minority women. And I'm just kind of like, you know, I really need you not to be this like cold about this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or as, as- as, as a, a man of a certain age, they're like, well, of course you have high blood pressure. That's right. And, and it's like, I, I didn't think it was inevitable. I thought it was like, you know, possible, but I didn't think it was inevitable. So, you know, we're going to talk about everything today. Of course, we talk about the good, the bad, and the funny. And and I always find that the, the medications that I take, I saw you take the thing for the high blood pressure. Then you got to take a statin, you know, for the cholesterol because, you know, what... And then you try to exercise and then you try to eat lots of, you know, green things. And preferably those are vegetables rather than meat. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, but then you still like, you go to the doctor and they're like, well, you're fine, but you need to keep taking the medication. Otherwise you won't be fine. Kinda. Yeah. They, they, they throw these little like disclaimers, like you're doing great, except, but (laughs) then all right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay yeah just that uh Leslie did you ever do the the no carb or the low carb or anything did you ever diet or anything like that I ended up decreasing my carbs and it wasn't necessarily at uh, a physician's um advice at all but what I did find out is um you know how you feel after you eat that big Thanksgiving meal and you're just like ready to check out <laughs> well, <Trip design. laughs> I, I was getting that feeling after eating like a six inch subway like if i would have too much in the way of of simple carbs my my body would just like everything would be going to get to to help my stomach to digest that and so i realized that the more vegetables and and proteins that i ate the less sluggish i felt on a regular basis exactly but i kind of ended up going a little too far with cutting down my carbs. And now I have a situation. I I didn't even know this was a thing, but thank goodness for Google that (laughs) if I have something very carb heavy, like pasta or or bread or, you know, Mm -hmm. something sweet and I go to sleep before it's really had time to digest in my system, I will wake up with a headache, kind of like a hangover Mm -hmm. headache. And the first couple of times it happened, I was just like, well, this is weird because I typically don't drink alcohol. So I knew it wasn't like a thing. And then I started looking it up. And that's that's actually a thing that can happen for some people. If you have had if if your carb intake has been so low that your body has gotten used to metabolizing other things when you like introduce that and you don't give it time to digest and it absolutely, you know, the sugars sit almost just like if they were alcohol, the the, the way that the alcohol breaks down. Yeah. 
So it sounds like you were almost uh, almost uh, too healthy, uh, so your body had to uh, and that's <laughs> make the thing. something it's just up. Like, are we going to find a happy medium? Like, <laughs> where, 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 yeah. where does this like? Where do I get to feel like I'm at equilibrium? <laughs> and now I'm going to take you back to. Uh, I'm going to pivot from this to uh, your time in the U.S. Army. Okay. I know you, you mentioned in, in the bit that we played view that you were in the army for 26 years. Yes. Thank you so much for your service there. Yes. Thank you for your service. You're very welcome. 1988 to 2015. Wow. It sounds like a long time, but trust me while you're living it, it's just kind of like, Oh, there goes another year. (laughs) Yeah. You just, it, it goes by like so many other things in life. I had a heck of an excuse to skip my 20 year class reunion though. (laughs) I was deployed. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. guys, not going to make it. I'm overseas. Mm, I'm yeah. so sorry. <laughs> and now, I, you know, running those dates in my head, 1988, uh, when when you went in, mm-hmm. um, then, of course, shortly thereafter is um, Desert Storm uh-huh. and, and so on. So what's the rundown of, you know, places and events and things where you found yourself in that unique position of a member of the U.S. Armed Services? Um, well, I could list you off all the places that I live. One of the things when I first enlisted, I was a medical laboratory tech. And so I typically was only stationed in hospitals. That's not everybody's experience, but it was my experience. And so I didn't have the whole sleeping under the stars and really roughing it experience for much of the time that I was actually on active duty. Mm -hmm. So when I was on active duty, um, my first duty station was Fort Lewis, Washington. From there, I went to Fort Bliss, Texas. From there, I went to Korea. I went back to Fort Lewis from there. And then I was going through a series of training schools that were like leadership slash advancement promotion type things. And so in the year of 1995-96, I went from Fort Lewis to San Antonio for six months to Fort Knox for six months and then went to Germany for three years. Germany was awesome. Um, And then came back from Germany for a year. And my last year on active duty, I was actually in a little place called Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Oh yeah. And I didn't know that that place existed, but I was in Germany and my tour was about to be up and I was not trying to stay in Germany (laughs) because by then I had three youngsters and a husband and, you know, we wanted to get back to the States. And so if you don't get like automatically generated orders within a certain time frame, then you can actually call, you know, the people responsible for your movement at Department of Army and be like, hey, why don't I have orders? And so I made that call and the lady was like, well, you want to go to Pennsylvania? I'm like, what do we have in Pennsylvania? (laughs) (laughs) And that uh, and I believe it's still there is where the Army War College is, which is where the colonels go to become baby baby generals is the way I describe it. And nice. and this is an army school. It's I, it it may be inner service by now, but at the time that I was there, I was there in 2000, and so mm-hmm. came back to the states, had my fourth child, who was my only girl, <laughs> and uh, finally, I know, right, <laughs> overachiever, uh-huh. but <laughs> but um, not too long after she was born, I came off of active duty because I wanted to get settled somewhere with my family. And so my now ex-husband and I decided to move to Ohio, which is where he grew up. 
and um, I joined the National Guard. So I came to Ohio in June of 2001. Well, of course, in September of 2001, 9-11 happened. And it's interesting that in the time that I transitioned from being active duty to going to the National Guard, the National Guard found itself in transition because it was about, you know, around the time after 9-11, um, Congress and, and DA and everybody was like, wait a minute, we got all these reservists and National Guards people that are trained and we're paying them and we're not deploying them. Why are we not doing that? We and should, we so should do that. that was about the time that the reserve components started seeing a lot more in, in the way of having active duty missions, which for a lot of people who serve, it's kind of like, but that's why I came here. You know, <laughs> like I didn't necessarily just want to sit in an armory one week in a month and, and twiddle my thumbs. As fun as that is. <laughs> right. Well, I also went back to school and got my bachelor's degree. So in 2006, I actually received a commission as a communications officer. So from 88 to 2006, I was an enlisted medical lab tech. But then I went, once I uh, got my bachelor's degree, I went to officer training and I became what we call, affectionately call a SIGO, which is a signal officer. And Uh Uh I served in various roles as an officer for another nine years. So that's why it took me 26 years to get tired of it, because I kind of restarted at like 18. (laughs) Yeah. And do I remember right that you uh, eventually earned the rank of captain? That's correct. So when I retired, I was Captain Battle, which my son just loved the heck out of. (laughs) Gold! (laughs) It's like, (laughs) that is the best army name. My mom's a superhero. I will introduce her to everybody that way. And I'm just kind of like, but that dude can kick my butt. Okay, I need you not not to be that (laughs) zealous about it. That, you know, that's that's quite an accomplishment, though. If your son is saying, my mom's a superhero, I'm going to introduce her to everyone. That's that's awesome. Well, and I kind of think that maybe a little bit of that had to do with um, <laughs> when I was getting ready to go to Kuwait. Right. And this was my first overseas deployment. I'd already been in. <sighs> OK, so I was. Yeah, I was looking at 18 years at that point. So I'm getting ready to, to deploy to Kuwait. And so my son would have been about 12. This is my my third child. And he and his friend, we had this huge blue spruce in the front yard. And I don't know if you're familiar with how these things grow, but basically the limbs come out like a ladder, like they're like three, you know, two, three feet apart. You can climb them like a ladder. I got one in my front yard just like that. It's about 70 feet tall. Right. And so my son and his friend wanted to climb a tree. He's like, Mom, come climb a tree with me. And at first I was just like, you know, that's not a thing that grown women do. And then I was like, you know, I'm about to be gone for a year. And if I can, Mm -hmm. you know, like give my son this moment of joy with his friend before I'm gone for a year, there's no excuse for me not to do it. And so I grabbed some freaking work gloves and I climbed a tree with my son and his friend. And I, yeah, I get massive cool points. That. <laughs> oh, awesome. awesome. He's 24 now, so yeah. <laughs> I try to remind him of the cool stuff that I used to do. Remember that time we climbed a tree? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I know that um, you mentioned your your fourth. Uh, mm-hmm. She's your only daughter, but I I know a story about her. Oh my! It's funny now that my kids are adults; they find fun ways to to, to get under my skin. My daughter, for example. So her dad's German-Irish, right? 
When she was born, she had big old blue eyes. I know, I had questions too. <laughs> I was in there like, uh, can I get a maternity test? <laughs> I always love your material, love your delivery. And, um, I was apparently standing next to the microphone laughing. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I I recognize that laugh there. (laughs) I I think that happened a couple of times, but I don't mind it. I'd I'd much rather (laughs) hear a laugh close to the mic than no laughter at all. (laughs) My cousin uh, started listening to the podcast, uh, around Christmas time. And, uh, he texted me like, did you record that audio? Because I'm pretty sure I heard your laugh. I'm like, yes. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I love listening back to clips because oftentimes I can picture the person in the audience that was laughing because uh, they'll have a real distinctive laugh or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Leslie, um, so we've got material about uh, your family, about your kids, mm-hmm. uh, about blood pressure, about about uh, health concerns, and, and about being in, um, in the armed services, mm-hmm. um, this seems like, you know, the, your observational, you see the thing, you find the funny and then tell people about it. Uh, is, is it more complicated than that? For me, it wasn't. And that's kind of a double-edged sword because when I first started doing comedy, when I first started doing comedy, I was fresh out of my, my second divorce and I needed something to feed my ego and take up my time on the weeks that I didn't have my kids. I had a 50-50 custody and I had my kids only half of the time. And it was, you know, obviously quite an adjustment. And I mean, don't even get me started about the divorce itself. I mean, that, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fact that I became a comic after getting this divorce should tell you so much. Yeah, right there. <laughs> right there. But mm-hmm. um, I considered myself a bit of a ringer because public speaking was never an issue for me. I was that kid in church who was like in first grade, but memorizing lines. And so I would get like the best parts in the church plays because I was the only one who could remember the lines. Ah. (laughs) And so turning to comedy, I I honestly would have preferred to do community theater, but I didn't want to commit to rehearsal schedules. (laughs) And so being an independent performer, 
Yeah. <laughs> that, that almost seems funnier though, doesn't it? Um, yeah. And interestingly enough, I have had the opportunity to be involved in a community theater production since my children have reached adulthood. And it was really, it was, it was a good, it was a good time. But awesome. um, I, I, I absolutely, you know, a thing would happen and typically my jokes were as close to the truth as possible. Um, I had a few things that were embellishment. Uh, granted, this was a clean show, so there were some things that I didn't talk about in this show. True story. <laughs> but um, like one one of the things that I joked about often was about being a cougar because I tended to date guys that were younger than me. Now, the thing is, people typically guess me anywhere from ten to fifteen years younger than I am. So, nice I mean, you know, especially yeah. for guys who are just like, I don't care how old she is. I mean, you know, so mm -hmm. I'm attracting like 30 year olds when I'm 45. But yeah. I was really just doing this kind of like serial singleness thing. So in as much as I did the jokes about being a cougar, they really kind of weren't as true to life as what I was expressing. But one of the things that I talked about was the fact that as my children, as my, as my boys got older, like I didn't necessarily see their friends all the time. So these cats would go from, you know, being five foot tall, 12 year old, little spindly things to looking like dudes that I would pick up in the club in a span of like five, six years. <laughs> <laughs> like one day I met my 24 year old for breakfast and we go to pay and here's this big old farm fed dude behind the counter and he's talking to my son like he knows him. I'm just like, oh, no. he's like, oh, mom, you remember Trevor? He came to the house that time. He didn't look like that when he came to my house. <laughs> you better be introducing me to people, honey. I think <laughs> I'm not their mother. I'm your mother. I know what you look like. I've been around you all the time. Them, not so much. Don't let me embarrass myself. But that was, you know, one of the jokes was that, you know, now that my friend's sons were legal, it's kind of all bets were off, which is not at all a thing that actually happened because neither of my oh, sons are really hot friends. That's what made me mad. To me, I was just like, I, I love that that's the, the breaking point there. But what was really interesting about that take, I came to find after I'd been performing that material for, for some years, is so I know we've been dancing around my age a little bit, but I turned 50 last July, right? Mm -hmm. Welcome to the 50s. I know, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but 50 now doesn't look like 50 did in the 70s, does it? No, it did not. Because no. <laughs> I'm just kind of like, I mean, I'm trying not to get full of myself, but I look good. <laughs> yeah, right. And I'm, I'm yeah. embracing these gray hairs. I want people to know a sister been through some things, you know? <laughs> Come on. Where are they? But right. um, when I would do performances, especially in clubs where the majority of the audience was, you know, approximate to my age or maybe even older, some of the things that I talked about. And I, I, I honestly, <laughs> when I first started and I would go to Mike's and there would be all of these young guys talking about, you know, their genitalia and and mm. saying untoward things to about women. And, and I was just kind of like, is this what people want to hear? Cause I, that's not me. That's not what I, what I want to talk about. And once I started getting paid gigs, I would have audience members coming up to me like, Oh my God, I'm so glad you're not a 20 something dude talking about his genitalia. We're so tired of that. <laughs> and um, I uh, remember doing the bit about don't bring your good looking friends around me or something like that, that I said. And it just so happened that a young lady who was also in the National Guard, and so like 
we were in the same greater unit, but there's like 2,000 people in that unit. So we didn't necessarily work directly together, but we were aware of each other. Mm. And so she had come out to support me. She thought it was super cool that I was doing comedy. And she brought her dad, who was my age. Uh-huh. <laughs> there it is. And so um, when I did the thing about, you know, if your parents have got divorced, don't be bringing your good looking friends around them because you don't know which one is the crazy one. <laughs> and she turned to her dad and she was like, dad, is that true? And he's looking at her like, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's real true. <laughs> like yeah. happy. I wasn't yeah. the only one who was thinking that because I was starting to worry about me. <laughs> and so she had to introduce me to her dad after the show because he was like, oh yeah, no, I 300% felt like everything that you said. Awesome. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it made it really interesting because in as much as I thought, you know, you, 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 there, there's, there's the books and there's the tips on writing and there's, there's all of these formulaic things that you can do. But for me, it was just, you know, a thing would happen and I'm just the kind of person, if, if I wasn't telling it on stage, I would be telling it in a conversation. So I, I really kind of considered myself more on the storyteller side, but like I said, the majority of my material, it was either, you know, sparked by a real life experience or like, and then towards, you know, the last couple of years, I really started playing around with um, doing some things that were kind of on the edge as far as social justice stuff. Mm. And I, I got some really interesting responses on some of the things because I just have this way of I I'm I'm really good humble brag at um, misdirection, <laughs> and so I'll have the crowd thinking I'm going a certain way, and then just take a hard left. You know, <laughs> uh, for example, uh, and and this this is a perfect example of of how my jokes ended up getting written. So I was being interviewed for a radio show, and this was at the height of the Kaepernick protests when, you know, the president mm-hmm. was calling people names and the NFL was just like, we're going to get these guys in line. And the greater issue was, for want of a better phrase, basically being ignored because then they turned it into, look at how disrespectful these people are to, you know, the flag and yada, yada. And not even going to go down that whole road of that, you know, mentality with that. But I was getting interviewed on the on this radio show, and the gentleman who was the host of the show was like, Leslie, I, I, I know how you feel about the protests. I mean, you're a veteran and everything. And I'm like, no, don't, don't, don't put me in that box because I'm really more offended by unprosecuted murder. But you don't want to talk about that right now. So let's, you know, not. So that was how the interview went. But what became the joke was when he says, Leslie, I know how you feel about the protests you know, cause you're a veteran. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm a middle-aged divorcee who loves seeing big dudes in tight pants down on their knees. <laughs> <laughs> Do not take that away from me. Like this is all I've got at this point. <laughs> and, uh, that, that is a, a, a left turn. there. <laughs> and that's the thing though. So many times I did that joke and I'd have somebody from the audience go, I, no idea that that was where you were going with that. Like that was so, that was like it, but it, it kind of 
helped to do the conversation because people would kind of relax a little bit, but we're still not negating the fact that the issue in and of itself is fairly serious. Right. And I, I, I one of the things about um, my kids having blue eyes, well, my grandmother's grandparents were slaves. I grew up in East Texas. I mean, you know, my family history gets pretty foggy in the mid 1800s. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to make it even more personal, you know, now that a lot of people are are really kind of delving into history and knowing what's going on. So um, are either of you familiar with Juneteenth? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, get this. My grandmother's father, right? So my great grandfather, so only four generations removed, right? Mm-hmm. Was born a slave in January 1865. Mm. Wow. Now, when you do that math and you know the Emancipation Proclamation was in 1863 and there's all these Mm -hmm. people who are just like, well, why are you what what, what even is Juneteenth? Why do you celebrate this? And it's just like literally a year and a half. No, I'm sorry. Two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was when slaves in Texas were finally notified that they were actually free. Oh, wow. And. You know, you hear the rhetoric, oh, just forget about it. It's in the past, yada, yada. And it's just like, but see, I gave birth to babies that have blue eyes, which means I have recessive genes in my makeup. Mm-hmm. Were these folks on my family tree? Yeah. And when I put it to people like that, it's just kind of like, oh, that like makes it really real. But I mean, I wasn't taught any of that stuff in school. We didn't talk about it like that when I was growing up. You know what I mean? So here I am as a 40 something, 50 something year old person, just coming to these very sobering realizations about my own heritage. And I mean, you know, where, where does that feed into my, you know, uh, susceptibility for certain diseases? Like I don't even know my family medical history. Yeah. But yeah, so I tried to make that stuff funny because then, you know, the whole world is doing what it's doing. <laughs> well, <laughs> I I think that um you, you've got a really great point there that the the direction change, that misdirection of, oh yeah, look at I'm a US military veteran, um person of color, uh minority. Oh, by the way, my kids have blue eyes. Yeah. And they're and your misdirect is as true to life as it is when it comes out on stage. And the reality of it is there are things about my life (laughs) that are kind of unbelievable. There's so many times I have one friend who just loves my stories. She is just enthralled by my stories. I have so many stories. And then I'm just like that imposter syndrome kind of hits me. And I'm just kind of like, why do people even believe me? Like sometimes I'm just like, how have I lived this life? But, um, it's 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 fun though. It's it's nice to share. But my my one friend, she is a, a English uh, adjunct, I think, and uh, she's constantly on me like, "Where's your book? Why haven't you? What? Are, why? 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 Why are you holding your story from the world? Like so many people need to read this story." But I mean, you know, the night is young. I might be around for another fifty years. I have a great aunt who just turned a hundred, so I'm not just saying that. We keep this blood pressure thing in check. I might have another half century in me. Uh, Very nice. (laughs) Well, the time has come on our little podcast to take a break, but we'll be right back 
Be sure to give us a review on Apple Podcasts so it's easier for people to find us and like us on all your podcast favorites. We'll be right back. Hey, if you're enjoying this podcast, check out my other podcast as well. It's called A Quick Chat with the Unemployed Alcoholic. In that podcast, uh, we take a deep dive into who people are, what's going well in their lives, and what they're struggling with. I know I'm always amazed at how deep those conversations go and how much I learn about other people and even about myself through just a quick chat. Find it everywhere by searching A Quick Chat with the Unemployed Alcoholic. Welcome back, everybody. Leslie, um, this first half, I have to tell you, this was really kind of neat for me uh, because you and I have never met. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I got to kind of play the fly on the wall and just uh, just listen to what you had to say. Just listen to your story a little bit. And uh, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to say a couple nice things about you. Okay. Oh, my. Okay, I'm ready. I'm sitting down. It's going to give people a little bit of a heads up because I, I have to say during that time listening to you, I was just kind of really moved uh, by who you are and, and your story. I mean, when you started talking about your kids, you know, it was so clear how important family is to you and how those relationships are just uh, crucial to who you are. Uh, when I heard you talking about the military service, you know, you've got some fond memories and you have a justified pride about some of the things that you were able to accomplish. I'm sure through adversity and and some difficult times, uh, being getting the education, achieving the different ranks, being known as a superhero <laughs> by your kid. It's just incredible. And and even though we've never met face to face, I'm I'm just personally proud of you and I'm just thrilled to have well, gotten you. to learn a little bit about you. You are a great storyteller. <laughs> Just listening to you tell a story, you are a great storyteller. And I, I got to tell you, I, I relate a little bit to the underlying story that you really didn't get into that much um, of how divorce kind of led to comedy. Yeah. And then comedy kind of led to a purpose and you being able to share. It, it really did. And um, it's <laughs> it's really um, funny. I, I, I don't want to cut you off yet because if I'm, I'm, I'm about to go into a thing. <laughs> <laughs> you just if I've got good things to say you want to hear them right <laughs> well I mean you know you, t- you take what you can get <laughs> it's, you know uh, that is true I, I I know that a lot of people really have a hard time hearing good things uh, but uh, but yeah I'm, I'm curious as to where you're going to take this what uh, where are we going well um well let's let's talk about my divorce. Let's talk about uh, some of the stuff that happened even before that. Uh, and um, because absolutely, uh, in as much as I am a big fan of joy, I've had my share of of struggles. Mm-hmm. And um, this is going to get pretty heavy. So I guess I'm just going to warn whoever's listening. I'm going to talk about some really heavy things. Uh, not the least of which, in fact, probably one of the most significant, Aaron, you talked about how important my family is. And um, I actually lost a child to meningitis in 2002. He was 11 years old. I'm so sorry. And uh, it's just a surreal place to be as a parent. Like 
when you're literally living what you always imagined to be your worst nightmare. But I also, he, he was my firstborn. And so I still had three other, you know, he, he, he was 11. My next oldest, my now oldest son uh, was nine at the time. So my, my kids were nine, five, and my daughter was just shy of two when my oldest son passed away. And um, yeah, that changes you. It makes you really think about things like the the story about the tree climbing. I mean, so many of the decisions that I made after going through that had way more to do with how can I help my family to be happy? How can I, you know, lessen the burden, so to speak? Um, and there's no roadmap, there's no manual, there's no, I mean, we were actually blessed. We had, uh, a, a neighbor couple that were older and they had lost a child who, um, would have been our age hmm. and they came to visit us, you know, as soon as they heard, I think it was, it was before the funeral, but, um, they they sat us down and they told us about what they had been through. And one of the first things that they said is do not ever, never, ever, 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 ever feel bad about grieving. Wow. You need to feel those emotions and you loved him. And if you, if you, if you don't feel those things, it would be because you didn't love him. So don't give yourself guilt about needing a minute to adjust to this, except it's potentially going to be the rest of your life. He's always going to be your son. It sounds like their perspective uh, was a godsend for you. It was so because, I mean, I was reeling. There was just so much. I mean, (laughs) it was one of those things, and this will kind of tell you, like, how the the mindset that I was already in, but it was kind of like, you're grasping for how can I possibly, you know, make myself feel better in this, in this moment, you know, until more time has passed. And it was about the time that Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped. Mm -hmm. And I was literally comforting myself by saying, but at least he wasn't kidnapped and tortured by some lunatic. Yeah like trying to give myself this space of I I don't have anyone to blame. I don't have any vengeance to take. I don't, you know, I just have to get it together for my family and we've still got to, to, to go on. But uh, he would have turned 30 in, in three months this April. So if if we're going to talk about the things that are my challenges, I mean, the, the second divorce was devastating and that happened roughly eight years after my son died. And there was a lot of dysfunction in that marriage. There was so much dysfunction in that marriage, but my first marriage, we got married super, super young. Like we were 19. (laughs) We were, you know, young in the army, thought we knew everything kind of out on your own, but the army is like the biggest safety net, especially when you're, you know, not even drinking age and you're responsible for stuff. Yeah. And, um, 
there was physical abuse and I didn't know how to process it because I was never around it when I was growing up. Um, I did grow up in a household that was pretty atypical. Um, my mother and father weren't married and my mom had some profound psychiatric issues. So she was in and out of inpatient care and I didn't know any different. Like I had friends who had nuclear families and I was primarily raised by my grandmother. My mother was in the picture, but she was almost more like a sibling. And, you know, cognitively, I knew that she was my mother, but also there were times like if she was having an episode from, from a relatively young age, I would try to kind of have this, not necessarily caretaker, but I knew to like put myself, that's not the time for me to try to get attention basically. Like if, if I knew something was going on and looking back at this as an adult, it's kind of like, wow, how did I even have those thought processes when I was like seven? Yeah. As a kid, when it's all that, you know, you, you, you do whatever you need to do to, you know, minimize the, the, the stress, I guess is the best way to put it. But so, you know, grew up, I'd say relatively well-adjusted, of course, uh, did well in school. I was really nerdy. <laughs> I was a theater geek. I uh, didn't have a boyfriend, but I still ended up with a letter jacket because I lettered in prose and, and one act play. That's a thing. <laughs> and I still have that jacket. It's 30 something years old, <laughs> but doggone it still fits. So I'm going to keep that thing until <laughs> right, it right. falls apart. <laughs> Boy, Leslie, here you actually, it's so nice to hear you laugh uh, when you think back <laughs> on that jacket. Cause, uh, because you've been through it. You well, have. And, and Brian can tell you there's some stuff that I've shared with him. I've told you about 20%. Yeah. <laughs> that much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just learning about the letter jacket now. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. So many times I, I get to talking about things and everything. And then I'm just like, wait, who did I tell what about what? But, mm -hmm. um, especially... Well, in, in listening listening to you talk about uh, some of those trials, some of those challenges, and, and also interweaving uh, some of the moments of joy and, uh, and things throughout. Those experiences have shaped you into an incredible woman. Those experiences have shaped you into a very strong role model, an example, historian, uh, storyteller. You, you are who you are because of many of those points of pain and because of many of those points of joy. And I'm so happy that we've been able to get to know you a little bit because you are a blessing to this world, Leslie. You are incredible. Remember how you said about things being hard to hear? <laughs> That's why I got quiet. Um, I know. And I mean, I think, you know, just just in hearing what you're saying to me, I think part of this that's what's unspoken is you're kind of acknowledging what I probably wasn't going to openly say, but that's the thing is like, we get so wrapped up in life. And even if we're doing extraordinary things, it's just so easy to tell ourselves, well, that's not that special. If it was that special, then, you know, I would, I would, people are really wrapped up in celebrity and notoriety. And I think that's really unfortunate because in as much as my story may be interesting, there are so many other people, you know, too. And, and, and I, I think if anything, 
um, I think one of the great tragedies of industrialized society is just how poorly we communicate with each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very hard for us to genuinely connect nowadays. And especially now, if there's ever been a time that we need to find anchors in one another, it's because you don't realize how dependent you are on a thing like physical touch (laughs) or Mm -hmm. being able to socialize until it's been, you know, drastically reduced. And I mean, going on a tangent right now and making this a little less about me, but about every, you know, society in general is when, when we really started discussing COVID and the, the threat was starting to become more evident, the idealist in me was just like, oh my gosh, this is our chance. This is our chance as society to kind of hit the reset button and figure out what our priorities really are. And, and, and let's do some really cool stuff with this. And, and some of that has happened. Some, some has of happened. it has not yet. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's the thing though, is what really disappointed me was one of the first things that our legislature did was throw a billion dollars at the stock market. And I was just like, first of all, not everybody has money in the stock market, (laughs) (laughs) but okay. I just, you know, have to trust that this is the thing, but I am, uh, you know, the more that I've learned, the more that I've seen, the more that I, cause I think, Oh my gosh, I think so much. I think so much about so many things. <laughs> and especially um with the 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 protesting that was going on last summer and I I really started kind of studying um the industrialized society dynamics that we have going on in this country with the Kaepernick pro- protest. I would say that's when I really started like looking at um, just how bought in I was to the idea of white supremacy unconsciously. Because for me, growing up as a minority girl in Texas, I, I literally had to know my place. Now, this is me as an adult looking back on it. As now, a kid, I, it was can just I, like... Can I, can I stop you and just dig in there a little bit? Because that's, yeah. that's something that it's kind of... It's uh, frankly, it's, it's kind of hard for me to understand, but so, so you said that you were, you were so bought into the concept of white supremacy. Well, it was just kind of a given that, you know, the white people tended to have more um, money. You know, we, we didn't really see people of color in positions of power. Like it was really impressive to see a black principal. You know, (laughs) as far as like a mayor or or, um, you know, a city councilman or or something like that. It was just kind of like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Like, I remember having a conversation with my grandmother when I was probably like 12, 13, 14. And I was just kind of like wrapping my head around politics as a concept. Mm -hmm. And she literally said to me, she was just like, well, of course, we're Democrats. We're black. And (laughs) 12 year old me didn't comprehend, you know, the the constructs that had to go into that statement. But 50 year old me is just kind of like, wow, that's, you know, wow. And then, you know, being able to have 
more discussions about some of the things that I, you know, live with. Like, <laughs> I didn't know until just the recent past, because again, growing up and then I left when I was 18, but my hometown was pretty problematic. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> For example, the high school that I went to, Robert E. Lee High School, right? I mean, you know that. But <laughs> there Wait. were... There were example, the name right. of the <laughs> Sounds really big and it's going to be. Um, so there were two public high schools in the town. Uh, population of the town, roughly 70,000, hovering above or below 70,000 at any given time over the past, you know, a few decades. So there was a private Catholic school that pretty much stayed out of the mess. But the high school that I went to was on the south side of town. And the other public high school in town, which was predominantly black, was on the north side of town. And every year when it came time for the crosstown rivalry, now mind you, I graduated high school in 1988. So we're talking about the 80s. And I know Mm -hmm. that it went on for some years after that. I don't know if it still goes on, but I know it went on for some years after that. But every year when there's the crosstown rivalries, white kids from my school would find the biggest rebel flags that they could and attach them to their cars. And they would drive across town to display these flags uh, you know, so that the kids at the predominantly black high school could see them. And that was the tradition. That was what kids did when I was in high school. Oh, yeah. Th- thank you for sharing that perspective and that experience. What was the name of the other school, though? <laughs> John Tyler. Oh, e- equally bad, but. <laughs> but again, <laughs> Even as late as the 80s, and in fact, I think that just recently they decided to change the names of both, I believe. Mm -hmm. But I mean, like within the past six months, those names got changed. And kind of let's let's go to a laughter thing here for a second, Aaron. So one of my classmates years ago uh, was a friend of mine on Facebook, and uh, she sends me this Facebook message, she's like, oh my God, they want to change the name of our high school. And I just, you know, our, our heritage. I'm like, our, what do you mean our, (laughs) you really think I'm a fan of that dude? If it was up to him, I'd I'd be your freaking unpaid maid. She did not like that answer. (laughs) I got blocked. Oh, darn. (laughs) But that's the thing is like, when we talk about these issues and we talk about um, you know, so many people are, are are pushing back with the, but it's my heritage, but it's this, but it's that. And it's just kind of like, but the problem with that whole talking point is what you're refusing to embrace is all of it. I mean, I look at my great aunt, who's a hundred years old. She's been on this planet for a century and she's never seen an absence of systemic racism in a century. Yeah. And, you know, it's like on the one hand, we want to say, oh, but we're making progress and things are going to get better. And I'm just kind of like, but see, why do we have to accept baby steps when the power wasn't seized by baby steps? I mean, I get really frustrated when I hear, well, we're going to make this new law. Well, now we have Breonna Taylor's law. I don't know if you heard, but uh, City of Columbus has a new law called Andre's Law because there was an unarmed man in uh, somebody's garage who was recently shot and, and, and you know murdered. Sorry, not sorry. And they didn't even render aid to him because they're not required to. 
And it's just kind of like, I, I, I can't comprehend why we're not enforcing the laws that are already in existence, but we're doing these other laws that, well, guess what? You're not making it retroactive or anything. So you're not prosecuting the people who, you know, committed these atrocities, you know, through all this. Like, how are you teaching anybody what the difference between right and wrong is? And oh, by the way, this is what we've been asking you for for literally a century, if not longer. But hey, you took Aunt Jemima off the pancake mix, so thanks. Good looking out. Yeah. But for me to say that is like, you know, there's there's going to be how many people like, well, what do you mean you're not grateful for them taking off the Aunt Jemima? Like, what do you want? We've been telling you what we want. We've been showing you what you want. We And the thing is, the people that are so resistant to equality, the idea that everyone would be treated equally doesn't mean that everybody's going to get abused. That's like the point. We want nobody to get abused. But the people that are fighting equality yeah. want to be like, oh, well, this is taking away from my rights. It's not a pie chart. If this guy isn't going to harass me and he's not allowed to harass anybody, then he's not going to harass you either. I don't understand why that's problematic. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's there's deeper some of these lightning rod issues. Um, there's there's deeper things on on both sides. You know, there's, oh, yeah. uh, it, you know, there's uh, there's valid concerns that. You know, uh, the, the old white guy demographic, like I would fall into, um, would have about some of the arguments. But the problems that you're describing are very, very real. And regardless of arguments that uh, that people might have or concerns or fears that people might have, I really think that getting together with people that look a little bit different than us is a wonderful way to just listen and just hear about the perspective, just hear about the experience of growing up and, and witnessing that. And just to have a moment of empathy that and put my own greatest. personal, that yeah, is just to put my own personal, you know, any innate pushback to any of the things, just to put that aside for a minute and just feel your pain. And, and and that, unfortunately, is what we have seen, especially the people that are so polarized. I mean, you know, like you said, on either side, um, <laughs> I, I had a conversation with a young lady. Oh, gosh, this would have been maybe five, six years ago. And she was very staunchly liberal and she was saying we haven't accomplished anything. And she was just like doom and gloom and this, that, and the other. And she was just like rabid about the points that she was trying to make. And ooh, heaven help me. <laughs> I made the mistake of saying, well, you know, I'm a lot less afraid of getting hosed in the street right now. Mm. So the, the idea that there's been like no progress, is there more progress to make? Absolutely. There is so much progress to make, but we can't, you know, we can't just be sitting here like firing ourselves up about how nothing's been done and speaking in absolutes. And the mistake that I made with her, I was like, you know, that, that kind of all or nothing really sounds a lot like somebody who is just as polarized the opposite side. 
And she was mm-hmm. just like, did you just call me a Republican? I don't know. <laughs> and, and, but of course she just completely shut down because probably for the first time since ever, somebody outside of her echo chamber was just like, but look at how you're delivering your message. Mm, like, yeah. look at, look at, you know, because a lot of people, and, and again, Aaron, like what you said, when people don't share perspective, then even the same word has different meaning. Mm-hmm. And we've seen so much of that here in the recent past. I mean, a lot of times certain people say freedom and what they really mean is I just want to be a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I want yeah. the freedom to be a jerk and I want you to have to shut up about it. Well, no, that's not <laughs> with certain rights come <laughs> responsibilities. So if you don't want the responsibility, you don't get the right. That's how that is supposed to work. Yeah. But- <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness, got me started. <laughs> you know, Leslie, this this truly has been just a wonderful uh time to get to know you. Um I, again, I I think that your ability to communicate, your ability to tell stories, your ability to to share perspective is just absolutely incredible and I uh truly count myself blessed to have been able to have this conversation, get to know you a little bit. Thank so you. thank you so much. It's been, you know, fun, but this is like what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, you want to jump in there with the? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, normally we would split oh, okay. the second half into into two pieces. Yeah. Gotcha. But okay. We're not do- we're not doing that because this was all just one big second half. So, um, the thing that we always usually do at this point as well is, you know, is there anything you want to promote? Is there if you want people to connect with you on the website, social media? all that kind of stuff uh is there something um, that you'd want you know, to put people to a thought right there now? leslie if if there's nothing that you personally want to promote i don't know if there's any resources where people can find more perspective or or anything about some of the stuff that we talked about oh um well unfortunately i'm not nearly as well read as i sound <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> if there's anything that i would suggest to people especially people who are kind of marginally interested in seeing substantial change. I think just, um, you know, learn about Juneteenth, learn about the Tulsa massacre, learn, see who's on your school board, you know, who's on your city council, who's on your, on your county commission and, and find out, you know, what those folks are doing. Yeah, the feds have some power, but what really affects your day-to-day is what's going on in your local government. Thanks for listening to the Clean Comedy Time Podcast. We bring comedians together performing their clean material at showcases, fundraisers, and other events. Our shows are free from course language and topics. They work for anyone, anywhere. Check out cleancomedytime.com to find an upcoming show or to bring Clean Comedy Time to you. 